Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Mangum Reads. We're continuing on to part two of the Mystery Night, which I think at this point is what? Part seven or eight of our time through Dunkin' Egg? We've divided this up into a lot of parts at this point. As per usual, I'm Spencer, and joining me are BJ and Sarah. How y'all doing? I expected something a little bit more uh, Dickinsonian in your intro, but what can you do? I'm saving up time for spinning silver. It's going to be a doozy when it comes. <laughs> I had great expectations. Oh, God help us all. I thought we had gotten Sarah, rid of all of the egg-related puns. I don't think they'll ever fully leave us. That story sticks with us. Okay. Well, this is Dunkin' Egg. It's <laughs> not like I'm referencing a completely novel story. <laughs> I wasn't commenting on their applicability to the story. I was commenting on their presence in the first place. Mm. Fair enough. It, At least we're not flying between Chicago and, and Grand Rapids. That's true. Cedar City. See, this is part of the problem of us doing these stories, is that I will have random people come up to us like eight or nine weeks after we do one and want to talk about the book. I'm like, I have emotionally moved past talking about eggs. <laughs> if you want to talk about Jewish women in Russia, I'm down. But right now, eggs is just a distant past scenario. Well, you just tell them you greatly prefer Dunkin' Donuts and as opposed to eggs, and it's fine. <laughs> I got someone the other day say, hey, I just listened to the episode you had about Asimov. I'm like, oh, Christ, what year was that? <laughs> That's impressive. It's like, oh, I appreciate you going through the back catalog. I'm not in a position really to engage you in conversation <laughs> right now, but give me like 10 minutes and I'll catch back up. Uh, but in terms of dedication to our material, Sarah, you're right now coming to us from the floor of your guest house. How's that going? Well, I feel like I've been hitting the chest with some sort of lance. Um. <laughs> you see, some of us are decidedly method, and Sarah decided to really relive the experience of dunk dueling with her underling. I, Perhaps too much. I'm the Daniel Day-Lewis of this, of this cast. <laughs> I mean, hopefully it was a joust and not more of more uh, interactions with John the Fiddler. Uh, well, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm storing up my energy in case I need to run. Um, yeah, so I, uh, I, I am on the floor. And, um, you know, I really do think, I'm, I feel like I'm getting a much better perspective on a sort of Doug's experience in the world. Right. Um, you decided that to really understand the, 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 the plight of somebody who grew up in Flea Bottom, who's working as Hedge Knight, you needed to be able to look up at the world entirely. Yes. I mean, what better place to experience being below the salt? <laughs> <laughs> Is there salt on your kitchen table right now to make it even more appropriate? I think I can see some on the kitchen counter, yes. <laughs> It counts. <laughs> I also have a fire going next to me, so there's a lot going on right now. Man, a lot to unpack in this, this, this experience of method acting there. Yes. But, but for our story <laughs> itself. Next time we'll get you some rushes. <laughs> I'll, I'll All set right. up my Russian next, nesting dolls um, <laughs> and make a giant right. paper mache one to put myself in. Um I will say that I don't have any one-star reviews for you, so this is the content that I that I can bring you on that front tonight. I've switched gears a little bit. You've progressed from bringing in other people's material to living it yourself. That's right. Well, to avoid us having to go through about four parts of this one, let's move on to the actual story itself. I think, if I uh, remember correctly, we left off where Dunk is at the top of the tower with John the Fiddler and has uh, just been interrupted in terms of whatever that was about to be by uh, Gordon Peake. What interrupt us, did you just say? Whatever that was about to be. Oh, sorry, I know what you're... I get the reference now. <laughs> I'm presuming not a coitus interrupt us. At least Dunk would have no idea what was happening before it was happening to him. Um, 
for this, pretty much we ended up with Fiddler basically saying that he is having a series of prophetic dreams that we most commonly associate with Targaryens. In his case, imagining that a dragon will be hatched within White Walls, which everyone is debating whether that's literal or not, as is the nature of prophecies. Fiddler seems to think it's going to be pretty literal, and hence why the dragon egg within the walls is proving integral to whatever plans everybody is engaged in. So, Spencer... Given yes. that, that you are um, numb to Gera's is uh, book nerd bitcher, so has there ever is that official? Been... Can I get a badge? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'm making a note. It's fine. <laughs> um, has there ever been a prophecy in that world that came out literally? Mm, yeah. Well, I'd say a lot of the prophecies come out a. I would say that there's never been a circumstance where the person offering the prophecy or the person receiving the prophecy has interpreted it correctly. Whether it ultimately <laughs> is literal, it's a different question. Pretty much, we have like one guy who's relatively good at prophecy in the entire course of A Song of Ice and Fire. Everybody else is perfectly accurate in what they're seeing, but is just absolute terrible at interpreting it. Okay. So like all of the undergraduate students in my literature courses that I taught... Sure, they read it. Did they understand it? Different question. Well, we continue from Dunk stumbling away after a very confusing night to, I think, moving on to the joust the next morning, where we get to see our various hedge knights, at least those that are competing, try their lance at earning the necessary money they need to live in this tournament, of where Kyle the Cat is aiming to uh, purposely fall down so that he can impress the lord that he's jousting against, which ultimately turns out horribly, as I probably wouldn't be able to advise him it was going to. Meanwhile, Dunk, despite the advice of all involved, decides he's going to try his hand at the lance and gets assigned to battle against a person that he met at the dinner, Uther Underleaf. Uh, guys, how does this go for Dunk? Poorly, as most things end up going for Dunk. Uh, but I did have a quick question. Didn't we have uh, Egg having a, a tiff with some of the other squires? Or am I misremembering? Yeah. You're right. That night, as Dunk is stumbling back drunk, he runs into, or you go searching for Egg, and eventually finds him with a bit of a split lip, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, as Egg, as he is wont to do, decided to defend his father's honor against accusations that I think he was hiding away at Summerhall and other things. Yes. yes. Egg mouthing off. Not a surprise. <laughs> or Egg not responding well to other people mouthing off. Yeah, nothing mm-hmm. Nothing of what is what we are going to talk about in the next few scenes is at all surprising um, in terms of who we are talking about and what they are doing. Character consistency. Mm-hmm. Yes, pretty much. Um, but so I sort of seem to remember this is where we get another reiteration of some roads are wind and some are treason. Mm, yeah, this is a recurring a recurring reference that Doug, like, Doug likes to make. I think the we got it where the first time we got it in this book was with respect to the priest with his head on the walls. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Apparently, Makor has been trying to pretty much isolating himself from politics, which has led to no small amount of rumors circulating about him. And that being Egg's dad, he does not respond well to people insulting him, despite Dunk's consistent warnings that he needs to let this go. At least while he's traveling with Dunk, he is totally not a Targaryen. He needs to remember that. Seems to be something that Egg struggles with and will continue to struggle with before this book is over. Um, has that addressed everything we think we need to leading into the joust? Yes. Well... 
for the joust itself, uh, Dunk's relatively confident in terms of fighting against another hedge knight that he's apparently been <laughs> practicing and thinks he will do decidedly better than the only other time we've ever heard of, seen of, or probably have reason to believe he has jousted before, at least in an actual tournament. Well, and he has, he has decided that um, be, because this knight's uh, sort of sigil is a snail, that obviously he's going to be fine. That, that is profiling Dunk, and we all know the dangers <laughs> of doing that. Uh, he rapidly I mean, realized... He was mm-hmm. almost stopped and frisked the night before, so... <laughs> yes, fair, good point. Uh, as we've been all hinting at pretty strongly right here, Dunk gets his ass handed to him in this particular joust. He'd been hoping he just needed to win one, and that would be enough. He'd ransom back the gear, and he'd be set for the year. Instead, he, in a single tilt, gets... Uh, a, a joust to, it's a lance to the head, gets knocked clean off his horse, and is knocked out of the tournament, thereby losing essentially everything. Because as we talked about in our prior episode, this is a really winner-take-all kind of tournament. In the event that you fail, you lose your horse, you lose your gear, you lose, for Hedge Knight, everything by which you can maintain a career. Mm-hmm. Which, which Dunk totally thought was, I guess, an okay thing to bet, given that he's barely living hand-to-mouth right now, but... As Dunk likes to say, he's a bit thick. Well, and this goes back during this um, during this tilt, we get some more um, evidence that goes back actually to a conversation we were having in the very first novella about the uh, the the way that Dunk internalizes and thinks about things is always in the simplest possible terms. He is living yes. by like Instagram wisdom. <laughs> Good way of putting it. And so he's got this sort of like a, a internal monologue that is just like, my shield is strong, my shield will take the blow. Only the snail yeah. matters. Strike the snail and the tilt is mine. And this is, I understand that there is there is perhaps some merit to like a stripped back philosophy that you can actually implement. Um, but I think this might be taking the fine art of jousting a little far. Yeah, it's admittedly the case that from what we can see of the one tilt, he actually does okay. He gets up to speed, he successfully hits Uther right in the shield, probably doing some damage, but he just had no idea of who his opponent was, unlike Uther, who was apparently remarkably well prepared as to all potential components he'd go against. Yeah, and uh, like on the other side of that, Zara, I feel like it could be like a focal point, like if he's like you don't want your lance to waver and so you know you look where you want to hit kind of thing. sure so i think that trying to i think distracting himself that's certainly true tansel too tall or you know i would just yeah. say <laughs> that i think that my point is that he actually doesn't have any knowledge outside of what he is saying right now like he doesn't yeah. have other experience he could be drawing <coughs> on that he's trying to strip away like this is literally all he knows so as far I, as training I for jousting. I think there was some time that he got some training that that are vaguely referenced in some of like the in between times to the no- novelettes that that we've read. So there's an it, implication that he's practiced a bit. Yes. Though yeah. Not at a tournament as such. Yeah. There's never an but, implication that he is anything other than terrible at it, though. Yes. Yeah. And as you said, he's basically kind of viewed that, okay, I read the books for Dummies version, and I've totally practiced on my own time. I'll just repeat what I remember from that book over and over again, and that will serve as an effective replacement for actual on-the-ground training. Yes. That's my impression, anyway. 
Yeah, at, at least uh, at this particular aspect of knightly combat, Dunk has not gotten that much better. At least not good enough to do, to uh, succeed in any measurable way. And there are times we see him perform it. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wakes up later. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with everyone kind of surprised that he's alive. But he did get hit in the head. He, he did I mean, get hit in the head. He is thick as a castle wall, uh, yeah. and yeah. the TBE is probably not going to particularly change his demeanor, so <laughs> it's fine. Yeah, let's just address something also here. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in real life, if you're unconscious for a period of several hours after being receiving a blow to the head, isn't that indicative of serious brain injury? Okay, so just because he had early onset Parkinson's and a couple of other issues, like, it didn't get recorded in, in you know, the great book of, of the uh, Kingsguard, so it's it's fine. His it's legacy is intact. That, it's all right. Yeah. It's one of those scenarios where it's an advantage of being in a medieval setting is that you're totally not going to live long enough for any of those effects to manifest <laughs> later. But he awakes, which everyone's a little bit surprised about, <laughs> and... He goes in search of, well, his gear and Uther, because he, being an honorable knight, who has, despite pondering the idea, has no real intention of running away because of what knightly virtues he adheres to that apparently nobody else in this setting does, (laughs) he goes to uh, speak to Uther. Um, Well, also in the background we see that uh, Glendon Ball is succeeding in basically winning every single joust and tilt that he's going up against. which was a bit of a surprise for me the first time around, because I assumed that he was being the stand-in for the overly cocky youth that Dunk both was and is, but apparently, at least at this, he is well-trained, well-capable, and is aiming to succeed, kind of with a certain element of destiny attached to it. Hmm. Also succeeding as Fiddler, for totally other reasons. (laughs) Yeah. As we find out later. So, Dunk is on his way. Yeah. So, shall we cut straight to Uther? Because he's a bit of an interesting, unique character for this setting. Yeah. Um, he's also got, like, some sweet digs for himself. Yeah, he's got a nice little <laughs> pavilion. He has an impressive just map pile of gold that's just sitting there that he's constantly counting. Mm-hmm. Well, some people that actually succeed at being a knight... <laughs> <laughs> Make money? Right. Shocking. Uh, well, interestingly enough, he doesn't necessarily succeed at being a knight. He succeeds at something that's kind of foreign for this setting. He succeeds at being a professional jouster. He succeeds at being a businessman. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so you say like something foreign to to what this is, but there don't seem to be many options for the hedge knight. Oh, I, I'm I'm totally with you. This seems like a perfectly legitimate way to earn a living. It just if we use Dunk as an example, is so. <laughs> uh, uh, I know it's an, <laughs> it's an awkward sounding board for this. At least to him. It is so shocking as to be inherently abhorrent that this guy is looking to make a living by just doing tourneys okay. and by intentionally coming in second place at each of these There turns. it is. Okay, mm-hmm. so so I feel like the abhorrent part is he doesn't try his hardest and win. He tries his hardest and then loses at the final. Sure. He is the first professional tourney knight we have met throughout, throughout this entire series and seemingly the first one that Dunk has ever met, too, because he has to be explained what it is. Uh, previously, well, mm-hmm. I feel like the things that Dunk needs explanations for are not a good marker of what exists in the world and maybe <laughs> what even is common. The other side of that is we haven't met many knights other than in vague passing. There was the tourney that he was at before where it was like half 
the ruling retinue and a couple of other knights and so mm-hmm. presumably there's going to be many many other knights that he's never met because he and Pennytree, i think just sort of wandered for like 90 percent of the time that they did anything right and did not participate in tourneys it seems like Pennytree's last experience with the tourney was in the far distant past long before he ever teamed up with dunk yeah so there was a little bit of service and i don't think there were any even serious battles that he really partook in not that we hear really described it was more just he was serving in various households with sir arlen mm-hmm. uh, rather than i mean i think he oft describes a couple battles but not ones that he really necessarily took part in the most of his skill with arms which i put in giant air quotes <laughs> at least for the first book um he's gotten through uh, aspects of training with sir arlen and even that was probably pretty limited so what did service with a lord entail that wasn't sort of semi-conscription. Uh, that's one of the examples we saw in the second book. Uh, otherwise, I'm guessing it could serve as just kind of like a force in being of where actual battles aren't necessary when you have enough of a force of arms behind you to force your will. Mm-hmm. And so it probably was just meant to be a representation of, I've got this army, do what I'm asking you to do, mm-hmm. rather than actually coming to blows. Which so he's essentially works. a movie extra. <laughs> yes, he is a mook. <laughs> I think that's probably reasonable for what most of these fights are, that I'm guessing most lords don't actually come to blows with each other, and that most battles with um, bandits occur with just showing up and they surrender because they're totally not going to fight knights. The actual opportunities where you get to fight are probably, for most of them, confined to tourneys, or various Blackfire rebellions that are happening in the background. Not that Dunk's really participated in those. Yet. Yet. (laughs) He's... He's happened to stumble into the third one without really real, yeah. the second one without really realizing it. <laughs> or, not yet, or purposefully. Dunk stumbles his way back into rebellions and, and <laughs> never even realizes it, and, and hasn't figured out who he's fighting for yet. Dunk, the accidental I, I, rebel. I love uh, Blood Raven's reaction to Duncan Egg by the time we get to this book. It's just the guy who knows everything, who sees everything, is a true frickin' wizard, is just utterly baffled by why they're there. It's like, are you asking me to believe you just kind of wandered into the middle of the middle of this pending rebellion and pretty much single-handedly sprung it before I even got there? Yes. Yeah, kind of that. So I'm going to say something that would anger Terry if he ever actually listened to this, and I'm very excited about it. <laughs> Dunk is the Jar Jar Banks of oh boy. A Song of Ice and Fire prequels. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, I can understand the comparison. Also, fuck you. <laughs> it's not as painful to me as it will be for him when I repeat it to him and he hunts you down and tries to murder you, but, you know, still, fuck you. Um, but continuing back to this actual story, I'm uh, curious to your guys' views. As we said, Dunk responds very negatively to Sir, Sir Uther and what he does to make a living and how he goes about it, and the offer he then makes to Dunk is an alternative to getting Dunk's gear, which he totally doesn't want because it's basically worthless to him. Yeah. What do you guys think about it? Is Sir Uther immoral, amoral, or objectionable in any ethical way by the standards of this setting, or is Dunk just kind of being a prissy, ignorant knight? I'm coming up with an answer for that, but I really need to comment on the use of the word prissy in conjunction with Dunk, <laughs> which is making it, it me really happy. Fit. It doesn't normally fit, but I think he can make it work for I this. I think so, too. Uh, BJ, you yeah. were going to say something. Yeah, I, like, I think that there is there are two worlds of A Song of Ice and Fire. There's the world that Dunk and Eddard live in, mm-hmm. 
and then there's the world that exists and everybody mm-hmm. else lives in mm-hmm. and i think that in their world it is very immoral what's going on and it's a super big problem and there is no way whatsoever that everybody anybody else has any problem with it and also all of the people that have won the tourneys have any problem with it and everybody doesn't know exactly what's going on except for the like five people that accidentally bet the wrong way at the final match um in terms of like is it morally a problem i i guess it's sort of like how you feel about tourneys and and how real you think they are um i i would assume that there were tourneys that actually happened that had surprising outcomes but i would guess that more of them were a little bit more like medieval times and everybody knew what was going to happen and it was basically the professional wrestling of the era i really love the idea of tourneys as the wwe and vince mcmahon (laughs) figures out there (laughs) orchestrating the whole thing does that mean that so who is the vince mcmahon here I mean, in this story or, or in A Song of Ice and Fire in general? Oh, no, I, just I in this story, that... I would say. Oh, okay. It's a weird um, thing, this weird comparison, but I suppose given that he's hosting, would Butterbur be the guy? Butterwell be the guy? Uh, yeah, well, I, I think it depends he's, on he's what WWE and running the tournament. era. He's coordinating and running the tournament. He's technically the administrator of all this. It seems like there's a comparison. Yes. Sure, but um, he's not like particularly the one creating the narratives. No, That's not true. so much. I'd suppose that creating for the, creating the narratives, at least we see through John the Fiddler, it would be a mix between uh, Gordy Peak and um, Tom Hit and Tomard Hit uh, Heddle, who are behind basically plotting every aspect of this tournament and who needs to win and who needs to fail and who needs to be the face and who needs to be the heel. Yeah. So, so who would be the face and heel of this? Uh... Well, the face is inherently going to be John the Fiddler. It's he's mm-hmm. meant to be the he's meant to be the hero. Everybody's meant to succeed, and they pretty rapidly, ca- given that he's competing for serving as the face, they then cast Gordon Ball in the role of the other of the other heel, though yes. not in a way that really works the crowd in the traditional fashion. Mm-hmm. It works the crowd into a frenzy to beat the shit out of him, but that's not normally the realm of competing we see this in. I was gonna say I feel like for the most part, Dunk is essentially the heel. Up until everybody finds out that he can't actually participate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone, he was kind of the person that... It's an interesting kind of narrative thing because everybody thought he was going to be the heel and everybody kind of wanted him to be the heel. And he just literally cannot play that function. Yeah. And, I mean, it's one of those things where everyone was kind of hoping that he would last longer in the tournament for you know purposes of imaging. But he had the misfortune of being up against Uther Underley at first who totally wanted to fight Dunk for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. That everyone's kind of invested in him. They'll bet against me. Let's make some money on this. I mean, the Fiddler wanted him to last longer, too. <sighs> We're going to keep doing this, okay. aren't we? Okay. Uh, well, key things we learned with respect to uh, Uther Underleaf is, A, the man makes apparently a hell of a living doing this, which pretty much no other hedge knight does. Mm-hmm. And, BJ, working off your comparison, I used the comparison of Eddard Stark for maintaining high principles and that nobody else really does. We see that a fair amount among the upper crust nobility because they have the luxury of doing so. It's just interesting to see somebody like Dunk, who is at the lowest of the goddamn possible low in the society, mm-hmm. and yet is aspiring to higher virtues, seemingly out of hope that he can be more a part of that world rather than he is necessarily now. Or- I think that Penny Tree died a little bit too early in his training. 
mm-hmm. because he, I think Dunk basically learned all of the things to aspire to, right. and was going to be taught the, okay, but this is the real world once he got to be like 16 or 17, and that didn't happen. He only, he only made it through the storybook version rather than getting the gritty details. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, he saw Penny Tree being noble, but being noble at sort of the tail end of a career when he could essentially afford to be, I would assume. Mm-hmm. And so he could impart this noble side of being a knight to Duncan until he had to bring him into the real world, but he died before that could happen and Mm -hmm. so dunk has this skewed view of what a knight does in this and the seven kingdoms yeah i think i think he also has a bit of a skewed view on the relative importance and nobility of hedge knights um partly as a result of hero worship of arlen penitry and also just it's the only world he knows but he definitely repeats that his view that the only true knights are hedge knights and it seems to inform a bit of his thought process on ever pondering a different career I don't think I think he's so so wrapped himself up in the concept of uh, being a true knight and that being tied to being a hedge knight that I don't think he could really ever imagine a different world. And it kind of goes into his just very off the cuff rejection of Uther Nidalee proposing what would probably be a pretty financially lucrative career for him going forward. I mean, he does make out okay doing <laughs> this, but essentially he is again backing into a weird success. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But. Again, he's the Jar Jar of the Ice and Fire prequels. <laughs> well, one of the main things we get out of his conversation with Ender Underleaf <laughs> is also that someone paid him to kill Dunk. Um, which Underleaf kind of sort of refused, kind of sort of accepted, but ultimately didn't really carry forth on. Which kind of leaving it open whether the, the hit to his um, helmet was a part of that or not. But he leaves it open as to who exactly paid him, because the saying was through intermediaries or whatever else. Dunk leaves this conversation obviously disturbed on a hell of a lot of levels, because, you know, he doesn't have many options other than surrendering his gear to this guy anyway, and now also finds out that someone's trying to kill him. And adding to his list of worries, Egg is missing, which rapidly sends him into a tizzy. Because of course Egg is missing, because Egg is always missing at exactly the time when <laughs> Dunk is trying to do something. Yeah... And as Dunk goes looking for help, he comes across a few series of events. Runs into John the Fiddler, and from what he's learned and put together, pretty quickly realizes that that's not his name, which the Fiddler makes no effort to deny. Mm-hmm. Uh, realizes from various of the details that he should have already been realized before that a lot of the people that are involved in this tournament, including Gorman Peak, are totally Blackfire supporters, and that that's kind of why they're all here. And while this is all going down, and he's getting increasingly frantic looking for Egg, Gordon Ball's ready to compete in his next round, only for someone to intervene and say, wait, wait, stop, the Egg's missing, and it's totally that bastard that took it. Because I saw his greasy hands on it earlier. Well, well, no, to- no, no. Oh, no, no, it's Ball that took it, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not blaming Dunk, they're blaming Ball. Partly because Ball's apparently doing way too damn well with this tournament, apparently, and they're worried that that could interfere with their plans of John the Fiddler, Succeeding, who, as we also learned shortly thereafter, has only been dealing against people that have been bought off to fail, mm-hmm. which he's apparently not in the loop about, which is interesting. But Gordon uh, Glendon Ball is 
promptly beaten, arrested, and taken off to be tortured uh, with the reassurances that the egg has totally been found in his saddlebags. While, meanwhile, uh, I'm trying to remember what event happened at this, but meanwhile, while all this is really going down, someone shows up at Dunk's back with a dagger to him and demands that he start walking down a narrow, a narrow alley leading to a well. <laughs> which... Never go to a second location. <laughs> which she eventually realizes is Lord Alan Cockshaw, who, from this conversation, really comes across as a bit of a jilted lover. That, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. He's a jilted lover. Sarah, you were going to say something? No, well, I was just going to agree with you. (laughs) That was the extent of my, my contributions. That, based on his pretty much tearful accusations that he's throwing at Dunk. Uh, he feels that Dunk has been pulling the fiddler away from him, that he's got no time for him, and the only logical process he can engage in for that now is to have Dunk killed. And that apparently he... Do I have this correctly? That he was the one that paid to have Dunk killed by Uther Underleaf? That, that's what I understood, but... Yeah. Yeah, because he was like completely... I mean, everyone was, everyone was shocked when Dunk survived, um, but... Yeah, he was particularly distraught um, yes. when he woke up. And so he, who from our description doesn't appear to be in any way a very descriptive individual, decides that he's totally going to convince Dunk to jump down a well right now. Because that usually works. I mean, yeah. of all people that you might be able to convince to jump down a well, <laughs> no. Dunk is a prime candidate. He has a ve- Dunk has a seem- seemingly has a very well ingrained sense of surviving anything, and jumping down a well does not have a high threshold of success on the living front. <laughs> but uh, this guy tries to force Dunk down the well. Dunk has his back to it, grabs a loose stone, and proceeds to beat this guy's head in and throw him down the well. In a rather bit of this is a little bit of a cold act on Dunk's part. He even throws him a bond one-liner as he tosses him down there. I mean. Previously, Dunks fought guys in tourneys, whatever else, but by the time he's beaten this guy's hip, bro- broken this guy's skull, he's not much of a threat anymore, probably, but Dunk still tosses him down there. So, so you say that he's fought in tourneys, but he's basically just, like, wailed people with whatever is handy, and sometimes it's in a tourney, and he wins, and sometimes he's in flea bottom, and maybe they've survived. This is not like a, he's a seasoned fighter, per se. He has gotten better. And one of the only times we've seen him actually duel a knight in combat to the death since the first book was in his duel in the river in the second, when the mm-hmm. battle between the two um, lords Didn't forces. Didn't he beat him with a shield? Uh, he knocked him down with that, but he did ultimately kill him with a dagger by, fiercing, by forcing it into the gaps in his armor. Okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, because so I would he, say that there are not, like, <laughs> real tournament events around beating people over the head with rocks. Well, if there ever was a, a prior experience coming to the fore here, I think Dunk is the one to do it. Because <laughs> from his prior descriptions of how one survived in Flea Bottom, it was kind of at similar moments like this. You fought dirty as hell to survive. And uh, Sir Alan Cockshaw is not well equipped for that fight and promptly goes into the well. As... Dunk's sitting there pretty badly Dunk wounded. Dunk needs a folding chair. <laughs> uh, Dunk, oh, yeah, continuing, continuing our wrestling metaphor. Um, as Dunk's t- sitting there nursing a wound, he apparently took quite a hit from the guy's sword before he tossed him into the well. Um, and a cloaked figure appears at the other end of the courtyard, which 
is at first described rather ambiguously. You guys remember how it's how, how it's uh, this guy's depicted before we realize who it is? It was um, j- just a kind of hooded shape, and the one white eye was what he thought he mm-hmm. saw. And then as he got closer, it seems like the features kind of emerged, as if they were just kind of coming into place. And he realizes that, oh no, it's Maynard Plum, and it's just that one little gleaming gem that he always, ha- always has on him. Mm-hmm. Um... Plum pretty much saves Dunk's life, nursing up his, uh, binding up his wounds, and then, continuing the rather ambiguous nature that is this guy, casually starts to reveal all various aspects of the plot, including. Yep, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say, and and we really just start with, we start with John the Fiddler. Yeah, that John the Fiddler Fiddler is totally one of the Blackfires. He is. Here to lead a rebellion, this tournament is a nest of vipers, and all of this is being gamed for the purpose of having him win, take the egg, and announce the rebellion before the assembled lords. And Dunk is right here in the damn middle of it, as per his his usual. He also advises Dunk where egg might be, which is rather useful. With with the gods. (laughs) With the gods. Which which Dunk freaks freaks out so much. Yeah, that, that that was just that was very much Blood Raven having a bit of fun at Duck's expense right there. Well, do you think he was having fun at his expense or just being like, oh god, he can't be this stupid? I, I think at this point he's been around Dunk enough or probably received enough active reports that he can assume that anything beyond a couple word phrases is gonna go right over his head. So yeah, this element of metaphorical I don't think was ever intended to land successfully. Fair enough. But, well it certainly doesn't. <laughs> no, no. But Dunk, uh, eventually understanding, sets off to go rescue Egg, but not before Eventually stop. understanding? You mean I'll hit you if you don't explain, like, what on earth is going on? <laughs> oh, okay. Thank you for telling me. I'll be on the, my way now, sir. We all have our method of coming to, a, coming to a solution. Dunk's is just a little bit more forceful than some of us. <laughs> but he goes to Uther Underleaf's tent because he now totally needs his sword back. Threatens the ever-loving crap out of the poor squire there, grabs his gear, and heads off to the sept, where he finds Egg in to- totally not harmed, with Lords Butterwall and Frey absolutely knowing his true identity, and all the hell freaked out as Egg has been playing them, saying that Prince Makar totally knows what they're doing, is aware of the plot, and is marching right now from Summerhall with a full-fledged army to hang them all from their battlements. Frey, deciding discretion is the better part of valor, pieces out, while Butterwalls, well, just kind of falls to his feet utterly... Butterwell just falls to his feet utterly falling apart in tears. Begging for forgiveness, saying he's totally not really part of this, that everyone forced him to get involved, and continuing his blubbering from there. You might say that he melts to the floor. Uh, very much like the butter that mm. he is. Um, I will say that in every one of these stories, we get the moment of, like, a full-fledged, precocious egg... Yes. Doing his thing. And here we are. We have made it. Third book. (laughs) It's finally come. Uh, Egg is just making shit up, bossing people around, and totally in his element. Quite successfully, Mm -hmm. too. Now, he had no long-term plan for what the inevitable result of this might be. He still has a bit of the Targaryen mindset that when everyone knows what I am, I'm totally protected, which is... Totally not the case with anyone but these two right now. Yep. Um, I also enjoy that for all of these moments when Egg acts particularly precocious and springs the plot upon us, 
Dunk's default response is to want to cuff his ear, but just can't do it because he's so happy to see him and that he's okay. <laughs> he might threaten it, though. Oh, might threaten it, but that's just part of the fun between the two of them now. But, as said, a Tomard Heddle shows up here, who also understands what's going on with the plot right now, and his response is more, okay, well, thank you for revealing this. I suppose I should kill you now, because that's what I logically should do. Mm-hmm. You're the only ones who know this. You're sitting with your back in an unenclosed space where no one's going to see it happen. Murder. This is my one the obvious chance. Solution. Yeah. Uh, so, Tomard Heddle squares off with Dunk. And... This is one of the moments where we start to realize that though Dunk may suck at jousting, or at least not be as good as Uther Underleaf is, he's developed a certain measure of skills at aspects of knightly combat. Mm -hmm. Because we can write off a lot of his prior victories as, you know, he just pushed him into the mud, he just beat the shit out of him, they were both drowning in the water and he got lucky. Here, straight up, one-on-one against a guy we've heard is really skilled, Dunk just wins. He just successfully defeats this guy and quite literally disarms him. Yeah, I think that Dunk being damn near seven feet and super strong does help a lot in... It factors in. But nonetheless... Nonetheless. Like, this is this yeah. is a real victory for him. Yeah. Yeah. And, again, he gets another Bond one-liner before he kills the guy. So Dunk's getting some good lines before this story's done. That's true. Uh, now, charging out, Dunk decides that having been already stabbed today, having murdered the commander of the guard in this castle... And having realized that Egg has convinced key members of this plot that the Targaryens are marching on them, Dunk does the only thing he can think of and marches straight into the main meeting hall and announces to everyone publicly who John the Fiddler is. And accuses the various lords assembled on stage of arranging this tournament, of framing Glendon Ball, and everything else that Dunk has learned at this point. (laughs) Again, this is the kind of thing that could get you killed. Except in this case, it succeeds because the main target of all of this is John the Fiddler, who he maybe assumes correctly is not fully in the loop as to all of what's going on, including particularly the framing of Glendon, of uh, Glendon Ball. Yeah, John, John the Fiddler seems legitimately surprised uh, at this sort of revelation. Yeah, yeah. surprisingly noble. Yeah, he's yeah. both noble and also kind of an idiot. He's... I think we've established pretty clearly that he's a bit of a fop himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I mean, he does do, does get kudos for nobility. Upon hearing this, and upon it being explained to him that no, the egg's just totally missing. Nobody knows where it is. They just put a stone in this guy's in this guy's bag to try to explain that out. And yeah, the tournament's been set up for you to win, and everybody else being bought off. And they were worried this guy could totally beat you. His response is well. I can't let that be true, and that seems unfair, so I'll declare a trial by combat. Mm-hmm. Fix him up, put him on a horse, and I will prove that I'm the better knight, and if he wins, he can prove his innocence. Which, which sure, several hours of torture later seems yeah, it's a bit of a <laughs> very valiant. Yeah. I was yeah. going to say, I feel like trial by combat is... How common is it? I feel like it's surprisingly common, at least in the story, but... Again, we're focusing on the most knightly of knightly moments as we step in for each of these novellas. I'm guessing most of the time spent on the road is just too boring to talk about. I mean, there was that one dude that tried to contest a traffic ticket or something in the UK. That Yes, which he was relying on the fact that English common law is a nightmare of, un- of uh, various series of laws that have just never been revoked. So he was technically legally correct that he could challenge the guy, though the court refused to enforce it. I feel like it's like... Were you very disappointed? 
I feel like it's like Precisely. the UK and New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> we just leave the laws in the books. There's no need to actually remove it's them, right? Fine. <laughs> just yeah. right over them. I also love the courtesy of that guy contesting the traffic ticket is where he totally allowed the government official to pick the location and the weapon, and that's just generous. Sure. I mean, huh? was he generous generous enough to allow them to uh, pick a champion? Because I feel like that would be... I don't remember. I don't... I, I'm actually... I'm going to look that up when we're done, because I'm curious. Um, but Dunk like... and, the, and the various other assembled hedge knights that we've come to know and love... Uh, all go down to the dungeons and find that Glendon Ball is in no condition to be fighting. They have been torturing the ever-loving shit out of this poor guy over the course of the last day or so, including broken teeth, missing teeth, broken fingers, peeled fingernails. Nothing really good for the process of getting into a joust right now. No, but I love Which that I his only f- question when he's told that he should be jousting is, do I have all of my fingers? Yes. Can I hold a lance? <laughs> sure. I'm good. Right, we're good now. It's fine. So it, I find it kind of interesting because, like, um, there is uh, another fun series, uh, the First Law trilogy, that mm-hmm. deals a lot more with uh, torture, which is, I feel like, a little bit more reasonable in terms of like what might have actually happened. Because how many torturers are really gonna miss the joust of the wedding? I mean, come on now. <laughs> Yeah, it's like, we're just going to lock you away and totally tell everybody we're torturing you, and then we'll do it in the off time during the evenings. We're not doing it now. I mean, but what what really are they going to net in the time that they're, like, wasting not participating in, in the excitement? Well, I'm guessing the literal torturer is not involved. Well, no, that's actually not true. Tom Hartheddle himself was involved in the torturing, wasn't he? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I, you know, priorities. They, they needed the, con- they needed the confession out of him, and they needed it now because they've totally got a missing dragon egg, and that kind of throws everything out the window for their plans. Fair enough. So they- I mean, this could be sort of more at the behest of um, powers that be rather yeah. than mm-hmm. his own butterball wants and desires. Yeah. Um, so tortured all to hell, scourged all to hell, and no condition to fight. He's advised that the battle for his life is about to begin, and well, I suppose the best thing to jump to is that he rises to the occasion. <laughs> and in the in the rain before the assembled lords, Glendon, the bastard Glendon, proves himself very much Ball's uh, son and bastard heir, as he proceeds to unseat the fiddler in a single tilt. I love this moment um, and kind of this narrative because I feel like even more than in any of the any any of the other two books and anywhere kind of leading up um, in this book, we get the like finally in any other story whose perspective would this actually be told from? Mm-hmm. It would be his, right? Like yeah, this is the narrative told. that we are used to following, and it's like kind of happening in the background it's interesting because this has always been the story of knightly chivalry that dunk is assumed is how the world runs Mm -hmm. on it's always been kind of his baseline assumption that this would be him in whatever scenario he kind of wanders in and that's never been true and now this guy who we kind of labeled before very much a young dunk in terms of the perspective that dunk has on him and his ignorance his hostility his confusion of the world how it really works and even doug Dunk at times trying to take him under his wing to explain <laughs> things to him. Sorry, Freudian slip. But a very funny line, Spencer. Yeah. Um, instead, 
despite being scourged, despite being at the mercy of how this world actually works, this is the Knight of Destiny. This is the knight proving his valor before all of the assembled lords, conquering the tournament despite all odds and everyone conspiring against him. This is the story for the ages that will be passed down for various new dunks growing up, aspiring to be knights to learn about. Mm-hmm. Um, which is all the more interesting given that this guy appears to be very much a stand-in for where Dunk once was, is that he's already now done the things that Dunk would nev- has never been capable of, or at least never been allowed to given the whims of fate. Yes. But. Which is kind of interesting because of, like, presumably where they end up. Yeah. Well, yeah. Good call. But before all these assembled lords, um, Fiddler being knocked into the mud and everyone declaring him a brown knight kind of announces to all that are paying attention that this rebellion has failed before it even began. Mm-hmm. So do you think Martin is really lazy? Because didn't we have another brown knight before? We, we did. Um, brown brown Ben Plum, I believe it was, from mm-hmm. the... Uh, from the, uh, oh, and he one. reused Plum again. Hadn't really thought about that. Yeah. Mm, disappointing. <laughs> oh, well. it's only so, it's a small world of Westeros. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is Plum the uh, bastard surname of of like High Highgarden or something? Hold on a second. I'm actually looking this up. Maybe I think I may actually be thinking of a character from the main books. Brown Ben. Yeah, that's totally a guy that's in da- Daenerys's court. I forget, I forget the name of our. Uh, what was the name of the uh, mercenary in the last book? Bennis of the Brown Shield. Got it. <laughs> okay, there we go. I mean, Slightly I understand that brown, we're like in the middle of the countryside and there's just a lot of brown everywhere, but let's <laughs> liven things up I, a little I bit. I feel like Tolkien would take a lot of issue with the, eh, there's just a lot of brown. We don't need to describe it. It's, <laughs> everything's brown. Well, no, it's fun with Tolkien because... Uh, at one point, he named a character, uh, Glorfindel, the same name as a character set from just centuries earlier, and it's an elf. And he could have totally written off that they're two different guys. But Tolkien, being Tolkien, decides to write basically its own series of multiple chapters just to explain a backstory necessary to show it's the same guy in two different events, despite the fact the first guy totally died. <laughs> Just because that's how <laughs> Tolkien works. There is a background for everything. So Even was things that, that could. Mm-hmm. The, retcon- the first instance of retconning? No, it's not a retcon. It's just. Well, I. It's, it's hard to say with him because the guy, even after he stopped writing the books, just kept writing histories. Yeah. Uh, I wouldn't say it's a retcon. I'd say it's just an explanation for a character that he decided he was particularly fond of. Fair enough. Because it, it remains consistent. It's not like he actually had to change something. He just made it. He, he just offered an explanation for how it works. But for this, immediately after Fiddler getting knocked on his ass and covered in mud, and Glendon Ball becoming the hero of this tournament, and winning the now non-existent Dragon Egg, uh, the horns blow from outside the castle walls as Bloodraven has come with the assembled army at his back. And very rapidly, everything goes to hell as everyone starts running around with like chickens with their heads cut off. How Fiddler... easily mm-hmm. and quickly can? I mean, armies can't move easily and quickly. It was just—it's just sort of like a like that he's there, okay. That the army's there, hmm. That that's kind of interesting unless they're hoofing it, it and seems... have a lot of advanced knowledge that this is what's going down at this joust. Well, the, the fact that uh, Bloodraven is himself present at this tournament suggests that they had a certain degree of advanced knowledge. Yeah. And that this army was called on long since to show up about this time. 
This this was a, this was a rebellion that was never going to succeed, regardless of whether Dunkin' Egg were present to help thwart it. They helped make it all the more of just ending with a whimper, but all of these assembled lords would have died under siege at best, given what Bloodraven had planned. And he probably intentionally planned in that manner just so he could finally kill off all of these lords that we've been probably wanting to for a while. So would you say that those are a load of straw men? Yeah, sure, that works. <laughs> you were referencing a, a T.S. Eliot poem, and I figured I'd complete the reference. I know, and I appreciate okay. you. <laughs> um, but... So, uh, Fiddler tries to rally the assembled troops to his cause by pulling his sword, which is the worst thing he can do, because as we previously, previously heard, he does not have his father's sword. He does not have the ancestral marker of House Targaryen with him. It's totally just a sword. Bitter Steel did not give it to him, because even Bitter Steel, the, uh, the, uh, the, un <laughs> the untempered rebel, had no intention better, of supporting yes. this rebellion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he decides that now no one else backing him up and everyone else just kind of running for themselves, that he's personally going to charge out and duel Bloodraven. Bloodraven being Bloodraven waits for him to do so and then promptly just has him arrested and carted off in irons. Because that's not what Bloodraven does. This is the saddest little rebellion that ever was. Yeah, this is just pathetic. Meanwhile, everybody else is kind of put into a brief internment camp to decide what's going to be done with them, including our various assembled hedge knights. Mm -hmm. Until they receive a personal message from Bloodraven to come immediately, they need to be talked with. And, for the first time in the story, or any of the novellas, despite him being referenced throughout, we get to meet Bloodraven. Which is interesting. Uh, he mostly just seems really amused as to the degree that his nephew just happened to be right in the middle of this conspiracy that he was in the middle of thwarting. Yeah, Bloodraven being presented as just like a real person was interesting to me because all we really got, or all we got at least in in you know in these books was a sort of mythos mm -hmm. about yeah, him. And yeah, and the the larger than life and the the kind of um, almost uh, incantatory sort of rhetoric around him, and he's like just kind of a guy. Well, yeah. I feel like that's the theme yeah. in many ways of all of these books where. You have somebody that is in some ways mythical in various different ways, and then they're just dudes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. in the last one, they were dudes, and then they just died. And it was just like, and and Duncan and Egg, but to a large extent, Dunk more than anybody else, just sort of ends up in the workings of state more than anybody else. And mm -hmm. he says so sorry that he killed people or, or whatever that he should. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting that, as you, like you guys said, he's really been built up as being like a Voldemort figure. And, well, he totally is a dark wizard. At least that's <laughs> I think the theory we all agree on. But he's not that level of dark wizard. He's just hand to the king and particularly good at his job. And he's here to personally end this rebellion before it even starts. And we get to see a bit of his version of justice laid out before Dunk really has a conversation with him. As we see, as Dunk walks up, the assembled heads of all of the key people involved in this uh, rebellion are already on pikes that are lining Bloodraven's camp. And, well, we see both what happens to Butterwell and Lord Frey. And it's interesting. It's two very different levels of punishment in the sense that Butterwell is immediately stripped of like 90% of his possessions and has his castle set to be torn down. And Frey basically just says, okay, basically he's just told, we'll have our conversation later, and just walks out unharmed. Mm -hmm. Kind of sort of suggesting that he may have been the source, the mole within this entire operation for uh, Bloodraven. That is 
very own brand. Yeah. Yeah, that that is how the phrase do. We, I said, we got to meet little Walter Frey in, in, in the course of this as the little snot-nosed baby, and apparently he learned from his granddad very well. <laughs> but Dunk has a brief conversation with Bloodraven, which is said is kind of sort of just amused about the whole damn thing. <laughs> as Egg and Dunk proceed to basically just set terms on Bloodraven, which again, he's so amused he just kind of goes along with it. As they specify who should not be harmed, who should get gold so that they can pay back their ransoms, who should be honored and respected despite the fact they're totally the son of one of the key members of the rebellion, and also debating what exactly the hell happened to the dragon egg, as well as what's also going to happen to Damon. To address the second point first, what, um, do you guys do you guys remember what exactly Blood Raven's plan for Damon, as the real name for um, the fiddler, is? Isn't he going to set him up in the court? Yeah, that. He has absolutely no intention whatsoever of inflicting any harm upon him. No, you can't make him a martyr. Can't make him a martyr and also can't clear a way for all of his younger brothers or other potential heirs to take over. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is, long as the heir apparent is in custody, no further rebellions can really occur because no one's there to lead the way. He is Damon Blackfire's son, or the last, last surviving oldest son. No one else can serve as the heir as long as he's alive. So... He's going to be placed into a very gilded cage, made part of the court, cared for, watched, and ensured that he will live a long, happy, and healthy life to delay any further rebellions as long as they possibly can. You say Uh, happy, interestingly, but sure. Well, I I think that'll be the public image of him that uh, Bloodraven's going to allow to to grow. (laughs) As it, uh, just a... Little bit of hi- little bit of history. T- that plan actually totally does not work out well. He dies within like three years, when, in circumstances that are never really explained. Oh wow! But you know, best of intentions, best of plans. And I suppose the last question we're left with to ponder is what exactly happened to the dragon's egg, which is a mystery to all but Dunk until the very end. Getting after Glay. Um, yeah, Dunk is part and parcel to to a lot of interesting things. <laughs> as he got to encounter this one particular dwarf on a couple occasions, including in very dirty fashion as he realizes that he went up the privy to grab the dragon's egg. Mm-hmm. And is probably now very comfortably in Blood Raven's possession to do with as he chooses. But, no, that finishes our... Reasonable. Yeah, reasonable place for it. Yeah, that finishes our third novella, which, given George R. R. Martin's writing speed, may be the last novella we ever get. <laughs> Fingers crossed we actually get the She-Wolves of Winterfell at some point in the distant future. But, um... Yeah, as we, as we kind of talked about, this one seems to be a bit of a bringing together of various to separate threads from the first two to what is really kind of serving as a climax, I think, of the first three novellas. Mm-hmm. As we see, Dunk and Egg very much establish the paradigm for how they're traveling about the world. Dunk increasingly coming into his own as a knight mm-hmm. through various other developed skills and increased tensions, again, between the various lords and people of Westeros with respect to the Blackfire Rebellion and also what it means to actually be a knight and what are the costs of adhering to knightly virtues in this world. And, yeah, for me at least, it makes for a very pleasant tale, uh, other than the sense that I'm, again, deeply fearful we may never get another one. <laughs> yeah, so are they back on their way to the Wall at this point? I think that is the implication, and given the announced name of the next one, the She-Wolves of Winterfell, mm-hmm. I'm guessing they're going to end up there at some point. Really? Um, I guess yeah. I assume that once Egg sort of announced who he is, that's kind of a... Uh... The end of his... Again, we are in a pre-internet world. Uh, <laughs> the fact that he had announced himself is not going to go far. 
And he did not announce himself to that many people. And Most of the people he the, announced himself to are dead now. Very dead. Very dead or in permanent custody. That's true. Uh, also, uh, Bloodraven does totally try to put him back in his own equivalent of a gilded cage so that he can stop him from doing whatever the hell he's doing, which is seemingly a little bit disturbing to Bloodraven. This is out there and happening and he didn't really know about it. Um, but Egg basically just tells him to get fucked, as only Egg can. <laughs> and they proceed to continue along their merry way of touring, off, touring around Westeros. Yeah. Um, we also know, and this is just a, something that we know from the mainline series, that Dunk totally needs to end up at Winterfell at some point, because he is a distant relative of Hodor. Right. By means of old... Uh, and at least from what Visions Bran has, he totally is going to hook up with Old Nan when she was not so old. Um, ah, yes. So that needs to play out in some shape or form. Things have to happen. We, it, we, despite the fact that Dunk never, despite having at least two potential romantic relationships, at least in this series, has never really had anything happen with that. From the mainline series, we know that it, two of our main characters in terms of Hodor and Brienne of Tarth are directly descended from him. So at least at some point in the future, Dunk's success with the ladies is going to grow. <laughs> at least minorly. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, so anything further? To, no, sorry. No, the only thing that I was going to ask um, was just about this this particular story of the three. And I'm, you know, now that we've had a couple of weeks in between recording the episodes and since me reading it. Um, it seemed to me like this story was less egg-heavy than the other stories. Yeah, I think that's very fair. I think, I mean, he, he even spends a significant portion of it off-scene with Dunk trying to find where the hell he is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think I, I think that's very much on point. Where in the second one, he was very much at Dunk's side the entire time. And in the first one, he was one of the really driving forces for the plot in terms of the building of his and Dunk's original relationship. Here, this is much more focused on being Dunk's story, with Egg playing a much more secondary role, I think. Yeah, and I think that I think that probably plays into kind of where you started this wrapping up, um, Spencer, at the, we, we are really getting a story of Dunk coming into his own, whatever that might look like, <laughs> and however that might manifest. Um, but it, it seems to be a little bit separate from Egg's gu- guidance. Well, I mean, at least in the prior two stories, though Dunk was directly responsible for saving his own ass, Egg played a very key role in it Mm -hmm. in terms of getting the other members of his family involved in the uh, nightly tournament, in terms of providing the the ring at the bottom of the boot to help provide a solution to the uh, battle between the houses in the um, end of the second book. For this one, Egg, you know, disturbs Butterwell, but that doesn't really affect anything, honestly. Mm Mm-hmm. It's really Dunk that has to go and save Egg, which I don't think has really happened before. Yeah, and I think this probably is sort of where we start cementing Dunk's place for Egg. Yeah, that's true. Um, Given that we eventually know that Dunk will serve as um, the leader of the King's Guard under Egg when Egg becomes king, this seems like very much the seminal moment in that and Egg justifying Dunk getting that position. Is that, well, all of you may be the most asc- most skilled knights of all the realm, but only one among you has ever actually defended my life and honor. Mm-hmm. And he stands before you. But so. We will have to see if that ever plays out. <laughs> <laughs> On screen? Or. <laughs> we, it, it, it is currently played out in Encyclopedia, and that is not an adequate way of having that story be told. <laughs> but we'll find out. 
for right now, anything, anything further to discuss about this, or should we move to Harry Potter before it gets any later in the evening? I think I think I am ready to move out of the Seven Kingdoms for a while. Yes, I think we're well, we very ha- much done with Martin. <laughs> well, y'all. Always a pleasure discussing these with you. And for if um, for next week, shall we introduce what we're going to go into for uh, Mangum Reads, BJ? Uh, yeah, I I feel like I've been trying to to uh, give some foreshadowing to our <laughs> listeners um, as best I can. But well, just just assume most of our right listeners now. are as thick as me and Dunk are, and just straight up tell them. <laughs> so so we are doing Spinning Silver by Naomi Novik. Um, it will be our first novel of the year, um, and I have been told in no uncertain terms by my mother that it is not sci-fi fantasy or anything of the above. It is a fairy tale. No. So we'll be doing the fairy tale, Spinning Silver. Now, remind me, uh, which, which of the two of you was the one that recommended this one? Um, I think, BJ, I you recommended reckon- it eventually, uh, yeah. originally, yeah sort of sight unseen but you were the one who read it and said oh yeah that would be <laughs> we fun. can do that yeah um so if our readers have other genre related questions um where might they go bj <laughs> um so there is a website that i'm told is somewhat functional uh, mangumtalks.com uh where all of our content is available um, in terms of Mangum Reads, Pottery Around, Whiskey on the Weekend, and uh, watching TV about terrible people in the form of Mangum Talks TV and or Mangum Laughs. Um, and if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can hit contact us at the upper right-hand corner. And you can get this and all of our other podcasts on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, y'all. We're looking forward to next week and new material.